ahora ya. Good afternoon. We'll get started here. It's truly a great pleasure for me to introduce our guest speaker for today, Marie Baldessari. Uh, I've known Marie for a long time. I would say it's like since we were little kids training and probably before a lot of you were even around. Um, but uh, we worked together a lot at the University of Pittsburgh before I came here. Uh, so it's a great pleasure to have her here as part of our first ever FCCSOB course and have her speak today about uh, disaster preparation. So Marie is a professor of critical care medicine at the University of Pittsburgh. She holds a number of administrative titles there as the associate director of the neurovascular ICU and the program director for global health, and I'm sure you'll be hearing about her global health interests in her talk. Um, she is, uh, got her master's degree at Wagner College and then an MD in Spain, Navarra, Spain. Came back to the U.S. for internal medicine training at Interfaith Medical Center and did her critical care medicine fellowship at the University of Pittsburgh, which is where uh, we first started working together a number of years ago. Uh, Maria went on to get additional training in MPH here in Baltimore at uh, Hopkins just a few years ago. She's got a variety of interests, uh, including neurocritical care, uh, OB-GYN critical care, which is really kind of a novel area, uh, and the reason we have now this FCCS OB course. Uh, and then she also has a great interest in disaster management and global health, which is what we're going to hear about today. And for her work, she's, she's uh, received humanitarian awards and the Safra Global Health Award from the Society of Critical Care Medicine. Um, I'll just add a couple of little things that I didn't realize. She was also the best doctor in Pittsburgh uh, list for a number of years. Um, and the Society of Critical Care Medicine, we both worked together uh, for many years uh, on the Board of Regents of the American College of Critical Care Medicine and now on Council for SCCM. Uh, so uh, it'll be interesting to hear what Marie has to tell us about how to prepare your ICU for a disaster. She's been very involved in this internationally, in fact, has her own NGO to do a lot of work, and I'm sure that any assistance we can give her NGO she'd be appreciative of. So Marie, tell us about how to get ready for a disaster. Please welcome. Sam and I have worked together for a good many years. I would say decades, actually, decades. Um, it actually is nice to be back in Baltimore. I did come back. I came back to Hopkins. But as I was telling both Sams, um, I had actually interviewed here as a potential fellow, and I was planning on coming to Shock Trauma as a fellow. And as I was telling them, my boyfriend at that time proposed to me, and... Uh, my husband, you know, I don't know, he was like a PGY-12 at that time, was doing cardiology and transplant and heart failure, and he was going to Pitt. And, you know, we had just gotten married. Uh, we proposed, we got married in New York, and, you know, I thought about, you know, Baltimore, Pittsburgh, you know, was that going to work? And at the last moment, I acquiesced, and I said, okay, probably should move to Pitt. And so that's how my career started, uh, and that's how my marriage started. And 30 years later, still married to the same guy and still at Pitt. So it probably, you know, in retrospect, it probably was the right decision. All right, so let me, so today I'm going to talk about one of my passions. And, you know, it's interesting how I actually got into global health and disaster medicine. And and one of the, the people that influenced me very much is here at... Um, Maryland, University of Maryland, and that's Lewis Rubinson. I call him the master of disaster for many reasons. Um, many, many a night spent drinking with Lewis, um, but he is truly a master of disaster. He is a brilliant 
man when it comes to disaster. I know he does a little bit less of that now. He's become very involved with your resuscitation program. But many of the slides that I actually use in this lecture were designed and created by Lewis. Um, I've written some chapters with him, written some books with him. Um, he is very knowledgeable. You know, he has a military background. And early on in his career, he was very, very involved with disaster medicine. Um, but, you know, part of my career has been spent working with the World Health Organization. And I became very involved with the Society of Critical Care Medicine, as Sam mentioned. And I, you know, I'm on the lecture circuit. And as I began to travel in the world, um, you know, I became more and more, as many of you are, global citizen. Um, I began to recognize that the world simply is not all about the United States of America and began to recognize that disasters are happening more and more. Uh, you can deny that as much as you like, but I think if you just pick up a newspaper, you can see the increasing number of natural disasters, the increasing number of terrorist events, increasing number of disasters of all types. And for many years, the ICU and critical care medicine was never really a part of that, right? It wasn't until most recently, I think if you look at Katrina and the Haitian earthquake back in 2010, that's really when critical care medicine sort of came to the forefront because almost for the first time, we actually had survivors for many of these natural disasters in the past, we actually didn't have a lot of survivors. So if you don't have survivors, you don't have a need for critical care services, right? Disasters, particularly natural disasters, have always been under the purview of EMS first responders. And when you talk about first receivers, you're always talking about ED docs and trauma surgeons to some to some degree. So critical care wasn't really part of that picture. But when you have survivors, so those survivors of the ED um, visits, those survivors from the trauma surgeons, then where do those patients go? Well, oftentimes they go to the ICU. And clearly Katrina and the Haitian earthquake and those things that have happened in Pakistan and India really underscored that. So the ICU became a big player in disaster management. The ICU became a big player in many of these terrorist events. So what we're going to talk about today is how does one prepare their ICU for disaster? And if you look at many big hospitals we don't actually have disaster plans. Now, it's interesting, and, I, and I'll share some secrets with you. Um, you know, I work at a very big medical center, University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, and we have a wonderful disaster plan. If you look at our emergency room disaster plan, and if you look at the disaster plan that the trauma surgeons have, which is very, you know, well cohesive with the ED plan, it's, it's beautiful. But I, you know, I, I just picked it up about five years ago because I wanted my senior fellow to, to sort of take this on as a project to sort of revise the critical care part of this. We turned the page and it, and it stopped. It stopped at the trauma surgery part of it. And we kept looking for the critical care part of it. You know, the patient went to surgery and then that was the end of the document. And we said, well, where does the patient go after surgery? And there was nothing after that. And I kept looking, saying, well, they, you know, there must be something missing here. You know, we probably don't have the full document. So even at a place like UPMC, which, you know, we consider ourselves the Mecca in that area, there was nothing about critical care resources after these patients came out of the OR or after they left the emergency room. Another case in point, I sent my fellow recently down to Puerto Rico because she spoke Spanish, and uh, I'm very good friends with the chief of the university hospital in Puerto Rico, and this was just after the disaster, and um, she went down there to look at their disaster plan, and even though they just had 
this horrific hurricane, they had no disaster plan. Their disaster plan was that my friend, who was a critical care neurointensivist who ran the ICU, was in the hospital every single day. That was their disaster plan. They had no disaster plan on paper. All the nurses stayed in the hospital. So many hospitals, even in this country, have absolutely no disaster plan for their ICUs. I'm not going to ask you what you have here at the University of Maryland. That's, that's between you and God. So, so I'm presenting this for you, just, just in case you don't have one. All right. So I'll be a little bit shameless, but I'll tell you that it, this has been a real passion of mine. This is in, I helped write this first book in 2012. This was a product of the Society of Critical Care Medicine. I wrote this in collaboration with Chris Farmer. Chris Farmer, as many of you know, was past president of the Society of Critical Care Medicine, did his training with the military, so he was very much involved. Uh, with disaster planning. Randy Wax is from Toronto, also with the military early on, very much interested in disaster planning. I followed this up with a, a, a book in 2019, which we published. We do these critical care clinics um, under the um, uh, direction of uh, John Kellum, who many of you know, who's kind of like a, a, you know, the nephrology guru. And, um, we published this intensive care unit in disaster. Um, so very much a, a passion of mine. So a few objectives. Where does the ICU fall in disaster preparedness? How do we approach it? There's sort of a generic approach and then a more specific approach. Where do we fall in disaster planning? Where does the intensivist fall? How do we get help? What's the role of the intensivist? What are the roles of other people in the hospital, and how do we train? Because as you know, just like everything else, if you don't train, just like any a cardiac arrest, rapid response training, if you don't train, we don't have disasters every day. So it's all about drilling. It's all about training, because if it doesn't happen every day, you're simply going to forget what you learned. All right, so... And most of you are pretty familiar with this cycle. It's all about preparedness. So effective preparedness will increase the success of disaster mitigation, response, and recovery. It's a beautiful little cycle here. The problem is it very much waxes and wanes. You know, when there's a disaster, you know, when there's a hurricane, when there's a tornado, when there's a mass shooting, uh, when there's, you know, a sarin outbreak, everyone gets on board and the cycle goes into place again. The problem is, you know, we, we don't have a disaster for a month or two. Everybody kind of slips back in. We have a disaster. The problem is people focus on the last disaster and not too many people look forward or prepare for the next disaster. We sort of have to break that cycle. Disaster preparedness, if you focus on that second word, is preparedness. It's looking forward and preparing for the next disaster. You can analyze, critique, and learn from the last disaster, but you need to prepare for the next. All right, so there are two ways to make to, to, to approach disaster preparedness, and one is a sort of generic approach. And the other is a more specific approach. And you sort of have to decide your balance. And, and actually, it is a balance. You can take an all-hazards approach. You can say, okay, I'm going to prepare for every potential disaster. I'm going to prepare for hurricanes and tornadoes and flooding and this and that. And I'm going to prepare for every potential terrorist event, mass shootings and poisonings and this and that seems rather all-inclusive and almost impossible to do. On the other hand, you could say, I'm going to be very specific, which seems a little more practical. I'm going to prepare for a mass shooting, or I'm going to prepare for hurricanes. I live in Oklahoma, so I'm going to focus on tornadoes, and I'm going to focus on hurricanes. I live in Baltimore, and maybe I should prepare for shootings and a little bit of trauma, because this is kind of what I deal with here. So you really have to balance. You have to think about where do you live and what's your vulnerability. 
So this is just a sort of, you know, wordy list about the pros and cons of taking both approaches. And most people sort of take a balance between the two. You, know, you just can't prepare for only one type of hazard. You know, something else is, it's not just going to be a mass shooting. You're going to have some natural event that happens. And that's a little more complicated. You have to think about what are weather conditions in your place. I mean, we had a tornado a couple of years ago in Pittsburgh. And we haven't, we've never had a tornado in Pittsburgh. We haven't had a tornado in, in centuries, but we had a tornado. Now, did we need to prepare for it? No. It's kind of a minor tornado. Did some damage. Are we going to spend our resources in preparing for the next tornado? No. I mean, chances are we'll never have another tornado. If you live in Oklahoma and Dakota, you probably need to prepare for tornadoes. Do we need to prepare for mass shootings? Yeah, yeah, we, I mean, we had one happen at our synagogue. We have to prepare for mass shootings. Everyone has to prepare for mass shootings. It doesn't w matter where you live. So you need to balance, you know, what are the, the terrorist events that you have to prepare for? What are the natural events that you have to prepare for? So, how do we prepare for it? There are all sorts of scoring, risk scoring uh, tables and um, sort of uh, assessments that are out there. Some are very good. Um, there's one by Kaiser Permanente that I think is probably one of the best ones. Um, and it basically takes into account what's the likelihood that an event will happen, what's the severity of impact should an event occur, what's your current state of preparedness, and what's the capability response internally and externally. And it basically, you know, sort of takes into account the risk is the probability of an, an event occurring and the severity of an event. But keep in mind that risk is different for different groups. And not only different for hospitals in different areas within a, a, a city or a state or a region, it can be different for the hospital. So if you have, you know, take your ED and your OR, they're certainly going to be impacted more by a mass casualty shooting. Now, that's not to say that the ICU downstream may not be impacted to some degree, but for example, if you have a pandemic event, Say, look at the 2009, 2015 influenza. So the ED and the OR, much less affected by that, but certainly in our ICUs, we were dramatically affected by that. So you have to think about what's the disease process, what's the vulnerability, and what's the hazard, and where will those patients end up? So there are a lot of factors that need to be considered here. Okay. Another way of looking at this is outcome equals hazard times vulnerability. So if you take, for example, a tornado, what's the vulnerability of the population? Well, vulnerability of the population could be what is the population? If you put a vulnerability, if you put a tornado in an area, in a very rural area that has very few people, vulnerability is pretty low. You put a tornado or a tornado occurs in a highly populated urban area, you can imagine vulnerability is pretty high. So everything interplays with each other. Okay, and this is one way of looking at, you know, we taking this whole um, HVA, what we call the hazard vulnerability assessment, and looking at different hazards. You look at the history. What has happened there previously? What's the vulnerability of the population? What's the maximal threat? And what's the probability of an event occurring? And I've just sort of listed everything, because Oklahoma seems like a really risky place to live. That's all I have to say. But, you know, it's pretty high on the list. I mean, if you look at all the events that happen in in Oklahoma, I mean, you know, with the exception of maybe an earthquake, I mean, there's a lot of bad things that happen in Oklahoma. But this is what they do. I mean, this is what most states will do. They will take and they will make an HBA. And then you can break down the HBA into different states, in different regions, different cities, different hospitals, in different areas within the hospital. 
Okay, so let's break it down to sort of the medical complications now. So based on, and we'll talk specifically about natural disasters. So when you look at natural disasters, you talk about who's going to survive. As you know, when you look at certain natural disasters, like if you're, you know, if, if you're standing next to a volcano that goes, you know, that erupts, I'm telling you, there aren't going to be many survivors. So you really don't have to plan for a lot of ICU resources because you're not going to have a lot of patients. But earthquakes, you're probably going to have a lot of survivors, right? History shows us that. High winds without flooding, probably going to have a moderate number. But if you look at the rest, like high floods, landslides, History shows us that you're probably not going to have a lot of ICU survivors. So when you're doing your ICU plans, you're basically preparing for these two type of natural disasters. So many of you have probably seen this. How do you prepare for the number of patients? So many of you have heard the term walking wounded, right? I mean, this was clearly demonstrated in the 9-11 disaster, right? Who were the people? Who are the people who show up in the emergency room first? They're, they're called the walking wounded. If you can walk into an emergency room in the first hour, you're not too sick. Because the fact that you can actually walk means that you're not sick. So based on that, we can actually calculate the relatively, to some degree, the number of people that you'll see over time. Because about 50% of your people will show up within the first hour, okay? And they actually, this was actually very well replicated in the 9-11 hospitals that were in New York. All right, so this is, this is, and many of you may have seen this, how do we calculate and how do we, we it, it's a guesstimate, but it's a pretty damn good guesstimate, how many people end up in the ICU from any type of disaster. This is actually coming through the ED, okay? This is not direct into the ICU. So EMS brings them into the ED. About 12% will go directly from the ED to the ICU. All right, so if they don't go directly to the ICU, a little more than a third of them will go to surgery. Those people will go to the OR, and about a third of them will go to the ICU. Delayed surgery, another third CT scan, about a little more than a third. So this, this is actually super helpful because based on this, these rough numbers, you can sort of calculate your bed needs, okay? Obviously, the, you know, your numbers may be off a little, but this is a rough estimate, pretty good rough estimate, of how many patients you will need or how many beds you'll need in the ICU. All right, so... What critical care services will be needed, regardless of what? Let's let's talk about natural disasters here, because what we're we're talking about are traumatic injuries and complications. Everyone knows that, you know. So let's talk about earthquake. Everyone knows about the traumatic injuries. You know about the rhabdo. You know that you know people being pulled out from you know concrete falling on top of you is going to lead to you know acute rhabdo. These are the patients that are going to come into your ICU right away. This is the patients that everyone always forgets about. You know, be, I was down in Haiti for months at a time, and the first wave was all the traumatic injuries, right? The broken bones, the rhabdo, you know, the acute surgical injuries. But the second wave of patients were all the medical patients because it was the decompensated heart failure, the decompensated hypertension, the decompensated diabetes, because none of the pharmacies were open because they were destroyed. So these people had no access to their medications. So anyone who was taking insulin and antihypertensives and all of these chronic medications, Synthroid, et cetera, et cetera, these patients were coming in full-blown heart failure, DKA, hyperosmolar, you name it. So this is always the second wave of any kind of crisis when patients run out of their medications. All right, so 
some of the critical illnesses you're going to see, we talked about traumatic injuries, neurologic injuries, the rhabdo, the AKI, acute exacerbations, as we talked about, the asthmatics, the COPDers, they don't have their inhalers, the infections, the secondary infections after the traumatic injuries, the hypothermia, no access, you know, depending upon you know, where they live, what the temperature is, the respiratory failure, the ARDS, the inflammatory capillary leak syndrome, the hemorrhagic shock, all of these are critical care illnesses, right? So you're going to, these are, these are the things that you take care of in the ICU. All right. So who should be involved in disaster preparedness planning? So we'll talk, obviously, multidisciplinary approach. You need to design, designate potential roles, not only for critical care team members, but we'll also talk about the non-critical care team members because there's nowhere where you have enough critical care people. Regardless of whether you're at the University of Maryland or the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center, there simply aren't enough of us. You know, you could be in the biggest critical care program in the world. There are not enough critical care nurses. There are not enough critical care uh, physicians. There aren't enough RTs. There aren't enough social workers. There aren't enough um, uh, physical therapists. There simply aren't enough of us. Depending upon the extent of the event, you will need more people. So you have to involve non-critical care stakeholders. And we'll spend a lot of time talking about that because that's really important. But you certainly need to designate the people you have in your team and give them roles, expectations, and responsibilities. So this is a really busy slide. I'm going to break it down. But these are, you know, this is the list of stakeholders in any critical care event, ranging from physicians to nurses to respiratory therapists to physical therapists to social workers to people in finance to pediatric, obstetrical services. What are you going to do with your pregnant women? What are you going to do with your pediatric patients? Your pediatric hospital is across the city. No way you can get your pediatric patients to that place or the pediatric hospital is full, which means you have to take care of the pediatric hospital. You have to take care of the pediatric patients. Um, laboratory people, you need to get, are you going to do point of care testing? I mean, these are things you have to think about before they happen. The problem is we never think about these things beforehand. And then everything is at the moment. And when you do it at the moment, it just falls apart. You have to do this planning. Security. You know, I mean, I remember when we were in Haiti, we had to hire UN security because what was happening was I was at the um, University of Miami and we were living in tents and, you know, we, we had the drugs on site and we had our water and every single night the people, you know, who don't have enough food, who don't have enough water, who don't have enough drugs, would literally attack the camp and they would siphon off our water um, because they didn't have anything. So, you you know, we had to hire security. It's not that these were evil people or bad people. It's just they're going to take from the people who have. So security becomes a huge issue because people who don't have food, who don't have water, do become violent. So in any disaster, particularly natural disaster, violence becomes very inherent after a certain amount of time. I mean, that's just human nature. And ignoring human nature is a very dangerous thing to do in a disaster. All right, so I, I sort of separated it out. But critical care physicians, as I said, you have to involve non-critical care physicians. So you have to be able to triage. You're not going to allow, you know, medical students to take care of critically ill physicians, but you can allow medical students to do sort of non-critical sort of tasks, right? You can allow house officers to do sort of higher level. You can allow residents to do sort of higher level. You can design sort of tiered responsibility. The same thing with nurses. You're not going to have enough ICU nurses, but you can use PACU nurses. You can use emergency room nurses. 
you can use nurses from other floors who will report to ICU nurses. So you have very hierarchical tiered nursing, and the same thing can happen with physicians. But you have to think about this beforehand because it becomes very difficult to do once the disaster happens. Same thing with pharmacists, respiratory therapists. You have to think about this before. No hospital in the United States has the ability to stockpile anymore. Those days are gone. I mean, I just heard that, you know, you're capitated here at University of Maryland now. So you don't have the money to, to stockpile 25 ventilators in a back room anymore. University of Pittsburgh, we don't stockpile ventilators. You don't have dialysis machines. So what, what happens when you have 25 patients who need a ventilator? Where are you going to get the ventilators? Where are you going to get the dialysis machines? Where are you going to get the catheters from? If you don't think about this ahead of time, where are you going to get the drugs from? You have to think about this. You know, you have to have a means of getting these drugs. What happens if the roads are blocked? You have to consider all of this. You have to have contingency plans. There's an answer for everything, but unless you have a contingency plan, the answer becomes very complicated and very convoluted. So pharmacists have to be involved. Dietitians, you got to get the food from somewhere. You know, you got to get the tube feeds. ICU patients need to get tube feedings, right? So they need to get tube feedings. They need to get foods. Need to get feedings. Physical therapists, occupational therapists, you need to have social workers. There's a tremendous amount of PTSD. I remember down in Haiti, we used to have social workers and mental health workers continually walking around, not so much for the patients, but for the workers. I mean, we, ha you know, we were working 24-7, round the clock. We had a tremendous amount of PTSD. So we were constantly being told that, you know, we could only work a certain number of hours, and then we had to sit down and talk to the psychologists and the social workers. This was extremely stressful. And in disasters, you can't just continue to work, work, work. So for the patients and for the physicians and nurses and everyone working, you have to have psychologists and social workers readily available. You're not allowing nurses and physicians and people to go home. You're keeping them away from their families. You're separating them from their families. That leads to a high degree of stress. You have to recognize that this is going to happen. Okay, other people, uh, facilities, management, communication. You know that communication may be knocked out in your hospital. You have to think about this. Are you going to use walkie-talkies? I remember Sam, I don't know if Sam was, was there. This was a few years ago. You know, when we think of disasters, you always think of disasters, you know, happening in Haiti and Katrina. And this was, I don't know how many years ago, maybe it was about eight years ago, I was the uh, intensivist for the night. We, we have something called resource intensivist where we cover like 200 ICU beds. And we had had this horrific uh, rainstorm all day, all day in Pittsburgh. And what happened was the power went out at the university hospital and the backup generator went on first thing in the morning, which I was unaware of. And I came in for my night call and my night call started at five o'clock. Well, Right at 5.05, the backup generator went down, all right? So I walk in, you know, get my pager, and at 5.05, the university hospital went dark. So every ventilator went down. Now, now, as you know, ventilators have batteries, but if it hadn't been plugged in, you never know how long the battery is going to go for, right? So if it hadn't been plugged in and charged properly, so all the pumps went down, there's no lights, the phone system was erratic, and we had no lights whatsoever. So, and it was myself and a trauma surgeon who was on that night, and luckily, both the trauma, oh, this was 2010, I remember now, because both the trauma surgeon and I had just got, gotten back from Haiti, and we both met with our cell phones, because that was because we couldn't find any flashlights, and we met together, we came up with the plan, 
And the first thing we did was, you know, Presby is like 12, you know, 13 floors. We started it on the 11th floor where the first ICU was because we, we kind of have a tower like here. And we just went from ICU to ICU grabbing whoever we can, we could to check on every ventilator because there weren't any alarms and we did not know which ventilators were going to stop because once the battery went dead, the ventilator went dead. And we did this for two hours until they got the power back. And I kept saying, this is a perfect example of a disaster at a quaternary hospital that you don't have to go too far to have a natural disaster. So disasters can happen anywhere. So this was pretty illustrative of the fact that you need to have a coordinated effort. In our wildest dreams, we never thought that something like this could happen. But be prepared for anything and have a plan. We had no plan, but we made a plan pretty quickly that night. But communication is important. It's super important. Luckily, the phones came back online. We were able to communicate with each other via cell phones and via the phone system. But if the phone system had been out, you know, we actually, what security did was went from floor to floor and gave everyone walkie-talkies because the phone system was working very erratically. Okay, so I love this slide, and this slide was actually designed by Dr. Rubinson. You know, I think all of ICU medicine and critical care medicine, is it's all about supply and demand. And when you look at disaster medicine, which is, you know, it's basically patient requirements and available resources. It's all about supply and demand. So there are two types of critical care response when you talk about disaster. It's sort of modifying what you have, and then we talk about emergency mass critical care. And that really takes it up the sort of evolutionary ladder. So when you look at, like, Haiti and Katrina, 9-11, that falls into the bottom circle. Modifying usual, usual critical care is sort of a minor disaster with just a little more extra help. So when you talk about modifying usual critical care, you can increase your ICU capacity by 20 to 50%, which is still quite a bit. When you talk about emergency mass critical care, look at these numbers. You're expected to increase your capacity by 100 to 200%. So if you do the math, that's an enormous amount of increasing not only your beds, but increasing your nursing capability and your physician capability. And that means providing ICU care for 10 days without any external support. That, that's pretty unbelievable, right? That, that's pretty tremendous. 10 days with no support from the outside. Okay, so we talk about the three S's in increasing capacity. Space, stuff, and staff. So space means you just need to get more space, right? You have this tremendous influx of patients. Where are you going to put them? You can't put them in a regular room, okay? That's out of the question. ICU rooms have to be sophisticated. You have to have gas. You have to have water. So you cannot put them in regular rooms. So think about ED. Think about PACU. Think about you know, pre, uh, what do you guys call it, pre, before you go into the OR, like, yeah, pre-holding areas, something like that. But it has to be a slightly more sophisticated room that has ventilator capability, it has air, it has vacuum. So you just can't throw them in any room, okay? You have to think about canceling non-elective surgeries, right, or non-emergent surgeries. Um, so... You really have to give this some thought about where can you put these patients. And then you have to think about the fact that most of our ICU patients, you know, we're very different than Europe where, you know, you got to be truly dead and dying to get into an ICU. ICUs in the United States, if you truly look at most of our patients in the ICU, they're there for monitoring. I don't know how it is in the University of Maryland, but I know how it is in Pittsburgh. And many of our patients in Pittsburgh do not have to be in the ICU. They're there for monitoring purposes. So at any given moment, I could probably easily transfer out a third of my patients from the ICU. So take a hardcore look at the patients in the ICU. Who can go to the floor? Who could go to a monitored bed unit? Get those patients out of the ICU. Okay, stuff 
It's equipment. We talked about it. We don't stockpile anymore. But where is there maybe some extra equipment that somebody has cohorted in their office? You know, where is some extra stuff? If shortage is anticipated, how can we get some crucial equipment uh, into the ICU? And most important, and this is always the most important, it's staff. You can't put a price on this. This is the most important commodity of all. Think about, you know, how can we cancel vacations? You know, how do we keep people in the hospital? You know, how can we protect our staff? How can we, you know, do we keep them in the hospital? Can we bring their families in? Or do we let them go home? I mean, this is the most complicated of all. You know, can we use other hospital staff? Do we have a sister hospital close by where we could use their staff? But if you don't talk about this ahead of time, you're not going to be calling them on the day of disaster and say, hey, can we use your ICU nurses? Can we use your ED nurses? Think about this ahead of time. Okay? You know, obviously changing nurse ratio. You know, it's not going to be a two-to-one ratio in the ICU on a day of a disaster. You know, you're probably going to have a very different tiered. Emergency mass critical care is a very different approach to ICU medicine. You're going to be doing very few patients, very few interventions. You're actually going to be doing a limited number of interventions and a very large number of patients, okay? So mechanical ventilation, hemodynamic support, basic prophylactic interventions. You're not going to be doing everything you normally do. You know, back when I was in Haiti, we, we made a conscious decision. No patient would be dialyzed. It was ridiculous to think that we were going to dialyze all of these patients with rhabdo. We weren't going to dialyze patients in Haiti where the average uh, spending money for these patients was a dollar a day. These patients would never be able to afford to be on dialysis. So we made a conscious decision not to dialyze any patients. It was heartbreaking, but we made that decision. We put them on mechanical ventilation, but that's as far as we went. We didn't put central lines in any of these patients. These were hard decisions, especially as an intensivist. Um, but we did as many mechanical ventilation as we could, but we stopped. We said, that's it. That's as far as we're going to go, okay? We had to use non-critical care staff, but obviously choosing carefully who you're using, surgeons, anesthesiologists, nurse practitioners, PAs. I mean, obviously, use who you have available to you. All right, this is an example of what I call this tiered staffing, you know, an intensivist, an ICU nurse, you use a hierarchical system with your most skilled ICU staff at the top reporting to them, and then using PACU nurses or ED nurses or even floor nurses or floor physicians, but reporting up the hierarchy. Okay, ICU disaster plan. So let's talk about how does one create a disaster plan. So once again, I have to underscore the staff is the most important part of any disaster plan. But remember, the disaster plan of an ICU, we cannot work in a silo. The ICU is a part of a much bigger plan, right? The ICU is part of the hospital. The hospital is part of the local disaster plan, which is part of the regional disaster plan, part of the state. Most of the time, we never have to get to the federal response, and you don't want to get to the federal response. You want to stay contained. Really, the only time that you need to be involved with the federal response is when it's a terrorist event. You don't have a choice. When it's a terrorist event, the feds immediately become you know, involved. But most of the time, it's going to stay at the state, local, regional, and uh, ICU. But keep in mind that we are part of all of this. Okay, so ICU disaster plan, you pick a leader, and you pick a position. Remember, the ICU leader is a position. You never pick a person. You know, as I told you, my friend, you know, she was in the hospital every single day in Puerto Rico. That's that's not a good plan. That's a terrible plan. But what happens if that person is not in the hospital and can't get to the hospital? You pick a position. You know, it's a position, and whoever can fill that position, you know, the most skilled person fills that position. 
You know, that person may be out of the country when this disaster happens. So you never pick an individual. You pick section team leaders. You designate. It's a hierarchy. It's a pyramid. You designate, okay? And you assign jobs and responsibilities. You put it on paper. You laminate it. What we've done at the University of Pittsburgh, when my fellow took over this rule, we got it through all the committees. We laminated it. We put it in the books on the unit. And I knew that was a terrible idea because nobody ever opens those books. We laminated it. We put it on the nursing units. We put it in the most, you know, visible place. We put it in a, like a yellow color so everyone could see it. We put it in the biggest, boldest letters that said disaster plan. We put like two or three on each nursing unit. So you have to be deaf, dumb, and blind not to see this disaster plan. You got to make it visible and it's got to be in written, you know, it's got to be in the written form. And if you stick it in a book and you stick it in a drawer, well, maybe somebody can find it, but maybe not. All right, key steps. Anytime you make a plan, you got to practice. Just like uh, we talked about, you know, with condition, with, uh, you know, medical crisis and uh, code blues, you got you to gotta practice, but you got to prepare, you got to plan ahead, you got to educate, and you got to practice repeatedly. Uh, you know, since we designed this a couple of years ago, we've had two mock um, disasters. We started with the ED. Uh, we've had one natural disaster, and we had one mass shooting. Um, I can tell you both were both were a little bit of a disaster to start with, um, but we keep learning, and, and hopefully we'll do be better with the third one. Um, and it's good that they didn't work out very well because we learned where our mistakes were, and hopefully each time we do it, we'll keep getting better and better. All right, how to design. You can do it different ways. You can start with modular exercises. You know, it's good to even go down to the simulator and do this. This lends itself towards high-fidelity simulation, but you can do it in the hospital as well. It certainly took takes a lot of effort to do it in the hospital. Uh, it's a lot of resources because you're going to have to shut down part of the emergency room, shut down part of the OR, shut down part of the ICU. So it's not something you can do willy-nilly. Um, like I said, it took us six months to prepare each uh, mock drill, but I think it was absolutely worth it. But you can do modular parts of this with high-fidelity simulation. Okay. And you need to evaluate, just like, just like any other mock arrest that you do. You need debriefing, and you need to give feedback. Um, to all of your people. Just some final thoughts. Preparedness needs to balance the all-hazards approach with the hazard-specific approach. Um, you need a multidisciplinary interprofessional team, and you need to um, participate in disaster exercises to test and retest and redefine and define what your goals are. Thank you very much. Great stuff. I don't know. Let's see. Great talk. Um, very inspiring. A lot of food for thought. Questions? Yes, ma'am. All the time, all the time. Well, you know, I. so the thing about it is I wasn't actually, when I went to um, Haiti, I actually spent most of my time in the DR, uh, which was quite an interesting trip between the DR and Haiti all the time because the roads were, were pretty bad. Um, and DR was affected 
back then. You know, so everyone talks about, you know, Haiti, the Haitian earthquake. DR was affected quite quite a bit, and DR was incredibly helpful to the period, to the people of Haiti. And you don't hear a lot about that. That you know, Haiti Haiti recovered primarily because of the help that the Dominican Republic gave to Haiti, not so much because of the help that the Americans gave, but the help that the Dominicans gave. Uh, because I can tell you that, you know, all of the hospitals pretty much in Haiti were destroyed, but the hospitals in the Dominican Republic were still standing. And what we did was we transferred many of the critically ill from Haiti into the Dominican Republic. And the Dominican Republic could have easily said, no, you know, we're, we're not gonna, you know, we're not gonna open up our hospitals to the Haitians. But what they did was they opened up their arms and their hearts and they took a lot of these Haitian patients into their intensive care units, both the public and the private hospitals. So I only have the greatest respect for the, the, the people of Dominican Republic. I have found that, and I have gone to Pakistan, I've gone to India, but I have found that my role has been better served as a teacher. Like, I love going to disasters, but when you go to a disaster, you do good on the ground, but I have found that I think I do better good by trying to teach people how to respond to disasters and how to prepare for disasters. Um, you know, it's like, you know, that Chinese proverb, you teach, you know, you teach a village. I think as a teacher, I do more good um, you know, as a young person, I think I did more good on the ground, but as an older person, <laughs> I think, I think I just do more good by teaching. But yeah, every time there's a disaster, I just want to get on a plane and like put my boots on and go. Absolutely. It's the truth. Well, I'm glad you stayed here and didn't go down, though I guess we sent Dr. McCurdy down to the Bahamas. Um, I've got a question. Well, is yeah. there another question? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Dr. Her. Hey, how are you? He sneaks in. <laughs> yeah. 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 Derek Angus supports me. Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, Derek Angus. Yeah, so Derek oh, Angus is is my chief now, which is an interesting position to be in to have a fellow. Derek Angus was my fellow, and he's now my chief. So that's a, that's another story. But um, but Derek Angus is brilliant. But Derek Angus actually came to Pitt to work for Peter Safford to actually do disaster medicine, and then he got sidetracked by that whole sepsis thing. And, you know, we're, we're glad he did because, you know, he's, he's done a lot with sepsis. So we're glad he got sidetracked. But he's always had a soft spot for disaster medicine. So for years and years, I was doing sort of disaster medicine and global health on my own. And, you know, some of my fellows would go with me, like on their vacation time and Christmas time, would come travel with me. But, you know, it was about maybe, I don't know, seven years ago, eight years ago, Derek said, you know, we should really formalize this because you've been taking fellows for years with you on these trips, and our fellows are global citizens. And every year, I was telling Andy, every year when we interview our fellows, there's always one, two, three, or four fellows who say, hey, can I talk to that lady that's interested in global health? And we recognize, and it's silly for us not to recognize that our fellows are becoming, they are global citizens, they want to do global health, they, they want to travel. They want to help people. Very few of them are going to do global health as a primary specialty, right? But they want to go out there and help. And during their second year, we give them the opportunity. So, in fact, we have a separate tract where they can do global health. So every year I have one or two fellows that do global health. Some of them combine it with, like, an educational tract. Um, Right. It's in, so we are the first critical care department in the country to just have a global health track. Um, and, you know, like this year I have a guy that's going back to India for two months. Um, he's going to two rural areas. And, you know, one is a place that he went to medical school. Another is a very rural area. Um, and he's setting up a global health program. So it's a combination of both global health and disaster medicine. 
Yeah, our fellows are very into it. Last year, as I said, I had this gal that went down to Puerto Rico. We've been sending our fellows to Haiti. It's a place outside Port-au-Prince, although we've kind of put that on hold just because Haiti has gotten a little bit dangerous lately. Um, we've had our fellows go. We had a trauma surgeon who went to um, sub-Saharan Africa with me. Um, we sent them to different areas. And usually I travel with them or, you know, if it's a place that we've, we're pretty secure, that we're pretty confident that security is okay, they can go by themselves as long as they have a project. They usually have to have some kind of QI project. Yeah, no, there has to be a connection. And it's usually like an MOU that we have with the hospital or organization where they go. We just, you know, because they can't go like and go scuba diving for a month. I mean, it has to be like, yeah, they, because that's happened in the past. Yeah. Yeah. There has to be a contract with the, you know, the hospital. Yeah. You have to follow the rules of the yeah, ACGME, follow, but we yeah. can do that. Because the ACGME office is really particular. Yeah. So I've got a practical question. So you talked a lot about what the healthcare professionals need to do in terms of preparation and what to do during the management of the disaster. What about engaging with the hospital administration for, in preparation, but also, in the midst of it. I mean, you don't need more hospital administrators at the bedside, but you do need their assistance with getting stuff, getting staff, changing the rules of what people do so that they do what they need to do in a disaster. Yeah, so we actually have a um, hospital disaster planning committee that we meet on a monthly basis, and it consists of emergency room docs, surgeons, um, it consists of physicians, nurses, and hospital administrators. Because you can't leave out the hospital administrators because primarily they control the purse strings, right? So some of this does come at a price. And I can't start moving things around the hospital without their permission. I mean, they they do control some things that we have no control over. So you can't do this without hospital administration buy-in. I think they've been pretty receptive. I mean, I think they got scared. I, one of the things that really scared them was that event where when all the ventilator, you know, when many of the ventilators shut down, that was a very scary event for everyone in the hospital because no one expected it. And, you know, it, it was it was such a magnanimous thing that happened in the hospital. Like having, you know, no lights in a hospital is a huge thing. And I noticed, like, up until that point, they had been, like, erratically attending the meeting. And since then, <laughs> they seem to be coming so, to every meeting. Lewis told me that. Oh. Yeah, he did. He mentioned that. Yeah. No. No. Yeah, I'm not sure what, what you're thinking about. Is he talking about the resuscitation, Safford's resuscitation? You're talking about the research lab? Are you thinking about. No, the oh the 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 code team is is uh, critical care attending and a fellow is assigned each day. It's not like it's not a separate group of people. They've got other duties. Yeah. Usually. No. Yeah. Any other questions? Okay, Andy. They're much more practical than we are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In developing countries, when they say we're not going to do it, there's no argument. They just say, this is it. We're not doing it. In this country, when you put those, yeah, it's very different. Um, and most developing countries actually... They make up the disaster plan on the spot, and there's no argument. They have such limited resources 
that the general public is very accustomed to getting very little. In this country, we're very accustomed to getting everything we want. So if you tell people you're not going to intubate them or you're not going to do dialysis, that's that's heresy, right? I mean, that's... But that's not really been tested in this country, right? So it would be very interesting to see if that ever happens. But no, in Haiti, when we said we weren't going to dialyze them, nobody nobody blinked. I mean, people were people were sad, but but no one said no one said you know you have to. Nobody argued with us. Marie, okay, we greatly you. appreciate you spending a couple of days with us. Thank Great talk. Great talk. Thank you. 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 Thank you.